the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Abernethy and Hagerman, LLC. Hello and welcome to Bisberg. I'm Gary Dixon, and today our guest is Jay Hagerman. Jay, welcome back to Bisberg. Hi, Gary. How are you? Very, very well. Thank you. We've uh, done a lot of programs together uh, over the years. I believe this is program for us number 16. I think 16, yeah. <laughs> uh, and last time we were together in number 15, we were talking about the top 10 elder law and Medicaid mistakes. And there was so much information, we were not able to get through all of those points that you wanted to make. I think there are 10 of them on your list. That's what we're going to be talking about today, top 10 elder law and Medicaid mistakes. So even though we've covered in our previous program, I believe the first five of those, obviously for those people that may not have heard that program, we want to kind of back up a bit, recap what we've covered so far, and then uh, go to the new points that we have not spoken on yet. Before we kind of get into that uh, too deep, let's uh, give an, an overview maybe of, of Medicaid and what it really is. I think there are some misunderstandings about that, right? Yeah, correct. There is um, There are some very common misconceptions because two general big federal programs, um, there's Medicare and Medicaid, and they sound similar. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'd figure that the government would name them very distinctly, but they didn't Um, in any event. um, So Medicare is our national health insurance program for individuals who are over the age of 65 uh, generally. And, um, you know, you qualify just by being a citizen or resident alien. Some folks believe that, um, you know, that Medicare will take care of a long-term stay in a facility, and, and it does for a, a portion of the time, a small portion of the time. But if there's an extended stay, uh, specific even over um, you know 20 to 100 days in a long-term care facility, Medicare will stop paying the bill. Mm-hmm. And you also have to be discharged from a, a hospital to, for Medicare Part A to pick up that bill. So then there's Medicaid. And what Medicaid is, is a federal program that is administered through the uh, – the states and specifically the individual counties have their own assistance office that if an individual qualifies both uh, medically and financially for for that program then essentially medicaid will pick up the the, the nursing home bill uh, or or a significant portion of it um, obviously, we're not medical doctors, so we don't deal with the, the medical qualifications. We deal with the economic qualifications and using legal strategies to mostly protect um, the assets of the of the individual who is admitted, especially if there is a spouse living at home, um, because generally the uh, significant portion, if not all of the income of, of the spouse or the person that has to go into the facility is paid to the facility. So losing one stream of income, you know, whether it's Social Security or pension or whatever it may be, can be a significant detriment to the, the spouse or the person that's living you know, in, in the in the residence. Okay, so if uh, you know the husband has so his social security plus, let's say he's got a pension, and the wife has maybe her social security, but if he ends up in the facility on Medicaid, then if not protected, they take 
his Social Security, and his pension probably, right? Right, and a significant portion of it after a period of time. And then all she's left with maybe at home is her only her single Social Security, right? It, it, depending on the numbers, yeah. there's a lot of math involved, yeah. but, but generally the answer is yes. Okay, all right. Well, so that can be pretty scary. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that could be a very right. huge loss of living exactly. income for her right. or whoever's at home. Because certainly, you know, the utility costs and in the, in the, the, the uh, real estate taxes aren't going down. Nope. You know, so, okay. right. Um, in any event, I think the last time we were here, Gary, we talked about the first five, you know, common elder law or Medicaid mistakes, which I'm just – I'm not going to go into depth on them. Um, I encourage our, our listeners to to go either on our website or your website, which we can discuss, uh, and listen to the the first five if they're if they're interested to, to hear all ten. And But uh, number one was, you know, failing to, to pre-plan or make a plan while, you, you know, the individual is healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two was thinking that it was too late to plan even if someone had been admitted to a facility. Um, number three is giving away certain assets without consideration or even thinking of the consequences like gifting mm-hmm. or putting your children's name on the house, right? Mm-hmm. We see that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, ignoring some safe harbors actually that were created by the law or exceptions that we talked about, such as um, potentially a caregiver's exception, transferring a house to a child caregiver if they qualify or, or even a, um, you know, a disabled child. or some. There's some exceptions in the rules for situations like that. Okay. Um, and then finally, the number fi- the number five one was um, failing to take advantage of spousal protections, um, which is a you know pretty in depth conversation. So once again, if if there's a spousal situation where there's a healthy spouse living at home and then a, a spouse that's living in a facility, there's significant protections for spousal impoverishment. So we you know we would work with them on that. Okay, so those are the five major points we covered in our last program together in the list of top 10 elder law and Medicaid mistake. Now, if you'd like to go on the website for Abernethy and Hagerman, it's a-h.law. That's a-h.law. And the phone number is 412-486-6624. Let's pick it up from there and go to uh, point number six of 10. Yeah, number six um, basically is failing failing to take advantage of certain spend down rules. So the the spend down philosophy is is a, a term of art, meaning that it has legal consequences and a legal definition. Realistically, and and what a spend down basically is is once someone is admitted to a facility, um, you know, there's certain places that money can go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously you can pay bills, you can pay medical bills, and everything else like that, but that doesn't really safe harbor any money. That's just paying a debt (laughs) or a creditor. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the spend down rules, so so for instance, that you can, and certainly you can't give money away because there's there's a problematic issue for gifting, which we'll talk about later. Um, And we previously touched on in the prior episode too. Um, In any event, the the spend down rules basically say where money can go to to try to shelter it or or even move it uh, if someone is trying to qualify for Medicaid without causing them any penalty or a disqualification. Um, some of the, uh, the examples of that would be uh, a prepaid or irrevocable burial reserve. Uh, so, for instance, you can uh, either go to you know where you want to be buried, the funeral home or whatnot, and you can buy uh, up to a certain uh, amount of money, which changes every year, and every county also is different for their limits. But generally, you can put between like fifteen and twenty thousand, depending on which county you live in, into an irrevocable barrel reserve, so that in the event that someone passes away or that person passes away, which we all will at some point, um, 
you know, that, that at least the funeral was paid for. Mm-hmm. And that that resource, that, that reserve, is not accountable resource uh, for Medicaid purposes. It's an I exempt see. resource. Okay. So the government doesn't look at that value. The other thing is, um, you know, during the process before an applicant goes into a facility, there are certain repairs that can be made to the house, uh, the primary residence. Um, so, you know, for instance, that that's one way that we can uh, use that. Unfortunately, um, you know, it all depends on the timing of the uh, the application. Um, certain certain aspects of where money can go, once again, are not. Uh, you're not, it's not allowable to be retroactive. Um, and what I mean by that is whenever the application is, is filed, um, which we'll talk, touch on the next two bullet points, but once the application is filed, there are certain timelines that have to be discussed uh, for eligibility. So, or, or I guess the application and the effective date of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in any event, when we talk about spend on typically what happens is the applicant files the application with the county assistance office. Um, an assessment is made, and then um, eligibility generally isn't there because you have too much money. So you know we have to quote unquote you know spend down the money uh, in an allowable manner mm-hmm. so that uh, we attain eligibility in at a certain effective date. So long story short, there's a ton of math involved. There's a, t- a ton of uh, advice involved. I mean, er- there's a there's a ton of calculations, and depending on the resources. So once again, this can be pretty. You know, pretty complicated for you know a layperson to sit there and try to do you know, have an average sure. daily rate divisor and then dividing everything out with the number of their available resources and everything else like that. So what we what we help um, families do is is basically you know deal with those calculations. And also, everything that we're doing is trying to keep, you know, once again, more money for the family. Right. Um, what you can always do is pay the facility more. Uh, that's not a great option, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but uh, I'm just saying that, you know, you work your whole life to save up some money. Why not try to create some benefit for your family rather than paying $12,000 a month to an institution? Well, why pay more money than you need to? Right. But certainly, you want to pay what you should. Isn't it true that a lot of people tend to think of Medicaid as just that's the point at which the government picks up the slack and takes care of all the bills uh, for your medical and don't realize that basically they the government at the end is going to do what it needs to do to get its money back or, yeah. as, or as much of that money back. It's not free money. Right, and that's another one of the bullet points which we'll talk about, mm-hmm. um, which um, is basically failing to be aware of what we call uh, Medicaid estate recovery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not going too far into the weeds, but basically in 2003, the federal government enacted a law called the Deficit Reduction Act. So, all the elder law attorneys talk about the DRA. That's the the acronym that we talk about. Mm-hmm. So, under the Deficit Reduction Act, it makes the states basically have a program that says if there are any exempt resources. Um, you know, that an applicant and an approved Medicaid individual has during their life, whenever that, that individual passes away, the state government, and in this instance, the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services, has a duty uh, under federal law to go and essentially sue or make a claim against that decedent's estate mm-hmm. in order to recover the assets uh, after death. So in English, what that means is, if assets are exempt for Medicaid purposes during life, 
they will be subject most likely to a state recovery after death. And, and primarily, this is the, like the house, right? Mm-hmm. You're allowed to have a house. You're allowed to have a vehicle. You're allowed to have an irrevocable barrel reserve. And depending on your income, you can have between eight and dollars and $2,400 um, in your bank account. Mm-hmm. So what happens is if, if there's an applicant – and they own their house and they apply for Medicaid and all they have is, let's say, $1,000 in the bank and they have a car and they have a house, they're eligible immediately. And they just have to file the appropriate paperwork and, and, and the application and all the verification documents. Um, however, when that individual dies, whatever Medicaid has paid, the Department of Human Services is going to assert a claim against the estate, which is essentially a lien against the house that gets paid before any of the beneficiaries. Uh, get paid. So if mom and you know if mom goes into the facility, and her will says all the kids you know get the house you know if there's three kids three ways after mm-hmm. uh, she passes away, I have bad news for the kids. Uh, the Department of Human Services is going to get paid back dollar for dollar um, before the kids are going to get anything. And I, I have had that many times. I've had two hundred fifty thousand dollar Medicaid liens on ninety thousand dollar houses, and and you know. The joke is, well, well, the government will negotiate with you. Well, I have a ba- I have bad news. They generally don't. Um, you know, so it's so easier to take in that case the whole house, obviously, uh, at ninety thousand dollars. Well, it also places the family in a tough position because after in that instance, after mom dies, the question is, do we administer? Are we debt collectors then for the government? Do we administer this estate? Right, right. Uh, knowing that they're going to get everything, and of course, the family doesn't have a duty to. But um, that puts the family in a tough scenario. Yeah, yeah. If you just joined us, you're listening to Bizberg. I'm Gary Dixon. Our guest today is Jay Hagerman with Abernethy and Hagerman. And we are inviting you to give a call to, uh, to Jay or go online and find out more about Abernethy and Hagerman online on their website. That's pretty simple. It's a-h.law. That's a-h.law. And the phone number is 412 412- Four eight six 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 two four. I'll repeat that information later on in the program. And by the way, I understand previous Bisberg programs we've done together are available on your website as well. Is that right? Yeah, we actually just redid our website um, about five months or so ago or so, and, and uh, previous Bisbergs are on there. And they talk about not just the Medicaid and the outer law, but issues involving asset protection with trusts mm-hmm. and the probate process and, and anything basically regarding estates, trusts, and elder law. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done I guess for 15 prior episodes. Yeah, uh, there's a wealth of information there. Absolutely. So next point. Yeah, the next two points actually deal with um, with timing and and really the timing of the filing of the application. So, um, and whenever clients come to our firm, we we handle filing the application. A lot of times, there's a social worker or some professional in the facility that says that they'll do it, and it's all part of the process. The problem is, is that um, you know, with all due respect to each facility, those those individual social workers don't represent the family's interest. They, they work for a company that's trying to get paid, and I, and I right. respect that. Yeah. So the family doesn't really have um, an, advocate. an advocate, an individual advocate or an independent advocate, right? Um, when, we, when we handle Medicaid cases, not only do we you know, draft a strategy and all the, you know, the legal documents necessary to effectuate a protection plan from what we can, 
um, we also file the application and provide all of the verifications. And what I mean by verifications is the government is allowed to request up to five years worth of documents. So, I mean, if you can imagine if an individual has some, some wealth and they have bank accounts and investment accounts and everything else like that, I mean, I – it's not uncommon for our applications to be 500 pages, and wow. I'm not kidding. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, actually, one we just did last week was about 590 pages. So, a lot goes into this. It's it's not just the 14 page document that's on the government's website. The mm-hmm. verifications in, in supplying the bank statements and the investment statements, or or you know even retirement statements or, or tax documents, that's all part of the application. Those are called verifications because the government wants to see where the money went before the taxpayer picks up the cost of Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of their job. In any event, if the first, you know, the first issue is, or one of the other bullet points would be, is if you apply for Medicaid too early, it's just a waste of time and you're going to be denied. So what I mean by that is this. Let's say that you know, we have a mom and dad scenario and um, they have some wealth. They have $500,000, but you know, let's say that there's an IRA with mom and she has $100,000 in it or a 401. And she goes into the facility and for whatever reason, someone applies for her. Well, she has $100,000 in her name. She's not eligible for Medicaid. So they're going to – and the way that it works is the Department of uh, Human Services County Assistance Office has to render a decision within 30 days by law. So they're going to look at this – they're going to look at this account and they're going to say, why would you even apply? She's ineligible and they're, they're going to deny her. Mm-hmm. So you're filing it too early just doesn't make sense. Right. And, and and for her to be eligible anyway, that money has to be moved around uh, in a certain way. And, and of course, if it's an IRA or – um, a 401k, there are going to be income tax consequences. Right. And that's, I guess, another thing that we do differently than some other law firms is uh, I'm, I'm a federally licensed tax attorney. So I'm, I'm, I can practice law in tax court. I have a nice little framed license that says that. And I'm, I'm kind of a tax nut. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the income tax issues and calculations and we even go through mom and dad's effective tax rates and stuff like that, work with their CPAs or their tax preparers and even financial advisors to come up with the appropriate plan. Right. Uh, so that's a little bit of a more holistic approach from a tax planning perspective than most lawyers would otherwise do. They would typically just you know, say, well, here's an IRA. you got to just deal with the tax consequences. Well, there's probably a way to be more effective with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we handle that. Um, would you be surprised if I told you I find this all mind-boggling? <laughs> no, I hear that a lot. I mean, um, you you know, people like me, uh, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, of course, we have people like you. But it's just the thought, it just, it, I go cold thinking about what could happen. What could happen to, to me or to my wife, right. whoever's uh, left, and, and all of that. So I'll be making an appointment with you right <laughs> after this uh, this program. There you go. Well, I mean, the other thing is I tell my I tell people who walk in the door for the first time, and once again, we give an hour free consultation to anyone uh, thinking about this. I always say the first hour's on me. The rest, you know, is, is going to, you know, we got to got to make a living, right? Sure, yeah. Um, but generally, we can sort everything out in an hour. Uh, I tell everyone we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to go through a lot of stuff. You can take notes, and that's great. The, the good news is there's no test after this, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, and what I tell folks also is, you know, you don't have to remember this stuff. I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's my job. Right. So, um, 
you know, as you can see, it's complicated, but we, you know, we, uh, I don't want to say handhold because that sounds uh, not, but we, we really are with the client every step of the way. I always tell our clients we'll get them to the finish line. Um, so that's kind of what we do. Right. Uh, and also, well, going on to the next bullet point, I, I kind of see this this issue more frequently than applying too early, which is applying for Medicaid too late. Oh. Um, you know, the way that it works is once an individual is eligible, I mean, you know, what, what happens is whenever someone enters a facility, the facility is going to issue them an invoice basically monthly, and they like to get prepaid. So that invoice, if they're in skilled or nursing care, is generally going to be between ten dollars or $12,000, which is kind of a sticker shock, but, I mean, it is what it is. That's what they charge. That's the average rate in Pennsylvania. Um, so what happens is... If individuals don't seek professional help or they rely on a social worker who, once again, isn't their independent advocate, a lot of times what happens is um, you know, they, they, they try to spend money down and they apply for Medicaid too late, meaning that um, Medicaid, what we, ha- we talk about, has a, essentially a three-month retroactivity period. Um, there's a weird – it's the first day of the third month before you file. It's a weird math calculation there too. But generally, it's a three-month – Retroactivity period. So what happens basically is once you're eligible, uh, if you're if you're eligible essentially in February, but you didn't uh, file your application and, and were um, approved until April, you can go back to your February eligibility date if you were truly eligible in February. But, but not ha- beyond that. But not beyond that. Generally, right? I mean, you have that three month essentially. Uh, retroactivity, but if you were eligible in like November of the previous year and no one filed your application until April of the current year, you're not going all the way back to November. So this is money lost that, I mean, that may not have needed to be lost, right? I mean, and it gets worse because if the person was truly eligible under my scenario in the previous November, there are four months of uncovered debts essentially, and what happens is if Either the surviving spouse or the community spouse doesn't have the money to pony up. The nursing home has a has a, a right by law to sue the children. Mm. It's called a, a filial support law, which essentially, or support laws, which essentially say that um, if there's an indigent parent, there's a class of people that are responsible to pay that bill, uh, which are basically spouses and children. Doesn't go beyond that. So if you're a niece or nephew, you're fine. But the filial support laws in Pennsylvania, once again, again give a suing right to a nursing home to collect debt against, you know, essentially right. spouses and children uh, for unpaid nursing home bills. You don't want that to happen. Not at all. Yep. No, absolutely. Wow, these are some big, important, and uh, I I don't want to go too dramatic, but uh, can be scary points. But my gosh, to to uh, hear this and to see these things or hear these things that uh, have not occurred to the layman is nothing short of kind of amazing for a lot of us. Now, you know, this program, you've covered five of the ten points, and, and we did a previous program, which would be uh, available on your website, uh, also on uh, Pittsburgh or podcastpittsburgh.com under Bisburg programs uh, that covered the first five points in depth. Now, if you'd like to go on the website for Abernethy and Hagerman, it's a-h.law. That's a-h.law. And the phone number is 412-486-6624. 
And on the program today, we're covering the top 10 elder law and Medicaid mistakes. And uh, here's number 10, right? Dave? Well, yeah. And before I get to that final one, Gary, the um, the previous four were once again not taking advantage of allowable spend down rules, applying for Medicaid too early, applying for Medicaid too late. Uh, failing to be aware of the estate recovery rules. And then the final one, of course, is, I mean, I have to say, not getting expert help. Um, that's probably one of the biggest ones. And, and through the 10 bullet points, I think everyone seems to be or would seem to be aware that this is a pretty complicated process, but we navigate this every day. Um, and getting expert help, I mean, I'll just give an example. I, I frequently get the question, well, you know, I can give away $15,000 a year and I'm good for, good for Medicaid. And I say, no, 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 that's an income, that's an income tax or gift tax rule. Mm. You can only give away $500 per month and it's not cumulative. So that means, and that means even like birthdays and Christmas and uh, weddings and everything else like that. So giving money away is a problem. So confusing, you know, your accountant's tax rules with Medicaid guidelines is very common. So, you know, an attorney like me would be able to differentiate that and kind of sort that out for you. Okay. So important, obviously, uh, to get uh, qualified help. So what's the plan for the individual listening right now? We have about a minute and a half left. Uh, they when should they i assume the answer is it's never too early but when should they they come to you i mean when do they really need to come to you and not wait any longer well certainly if they have a loved one who was admitted into a facility yeah but it'd be uh, best to do that before they're yeah, admitted right right exactly if the, you know if mom dad or, or grandma or grandpa anyone who is a loved one you know, is is it? You know, as as they age, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe they start to show cognitive issues, or um, just want to have more information about the process. Um, you know, it's never too late to just call our office. We'll give you kind of some homework to assemble to take a look at the the assets, the ownership, and the the legal documents that we want to look. And and once again, I think I've said this on numerous shows. You know, every year you typically go to get a medical checkup. Mm-hmm. Well. After so many years, it's probably good to get a legal checkup, too, because laws change, assets change, uh, tax laws change significantly, um, especially in the current environment. So in any event, it never hurts to get a legal checkup. And as I said, the first hour is on me. Anything after that, we'll talk about. Okay, very good. Sounds fair to me. We've been speaking with Jay Hagerman of Abernethy & Hagerman, and the website again, a-h.law, and the phone number is 412-486. Six six two four. We invite you to go online and check them out and give them a call. Make an appointment, uh, probably sooner rather than later. Thanks for all the great information, Jay. Yeah, thank you, Gary. Today's program sponsored by Abernethy and Hagerman LLC. We'll see you next time. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.